All right. Hopefully you learned something new. Um, so I'm still learning the art of transitioning between worship leading and preaching. So thanks for being patient with me tonight. Uh, before I dive into the message, would you stand as we read God's word together? We're going to be reading Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of God. May be seated. So we are in a bit of an interlude. Um, as I had mentioned, for those of you who were last week, we took a couple weeks off of Revelation. We're going to be coming back next week. One of our elders, Ben Davis, who's here tonight, he's going to be teaching next week. So I encourage you to come back. It's also first Thursday, which means we will take uh, the Eucharist together. So we hope you can be here to do that with us next week. But in this interlude, uh, last week, if you were here, we did a little meditation on suffering and sort of worked out a theology of suffering um, looking at a brief snippet of the life of Job and the motif of a refiner's fire in the scriptures. And this week, we sort of carry on that a little bit, but it's, it's a little bit of a different teaching. Um, <clears throat> Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount, which if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, this is what I would argue is not only the greatest teachings in the entire scriptures, I think it's maybe the greatest gathering of teachings of all time. It's the greatest uh, uh, most amount of wisdom and truth packed into this teaching. It's really quite remarkable. And he ends this Sermon on the Mound not with a nice little anecdote or a, uh, a joke or a, a little pep talk, but he ends it with a warning. And so I want to read um, and sort of dive into this short passage that I've referenced before, but do a little bit more of a deep dive on it. Um, this is, again, Matthew 7. 24. Um, <clears throat> now, before we jump into that deep dive, I, I want to do a little bit of sociology. Is that okay? Just a little bit uh, to help us understand what I think is going to help name our cultural moment and why I think these words are especially pertinent to us tonight. Um, I want to share three ideas from three different thinkers. The first thinker is a guy named Buckminster Fuller. You may be familiar with him. At the, uh, if you've been to Disney World, he was the guy He's an architect. He designed the uh, geodesic dome. So if you've seen that, that's the guy who designed that. He was a, a, a writer and a futurist thinker. So he's one who would think about the future. And he, he wrote a lot of very profound things. And one of the things he came up, up with was this idea of the knowledge doubling curve. I actually have a chart here to show you. It's kind of small, but this is the, uh, the, the idea of the knowledge doubling curve. And what this, what this is, is that he estimated that since the time Jesus was born until the 1500s, that it took that long for the entire knowledge of all civilizations to double. But what happened following that was that this rate of knowledge doubling began to increase. 
From there, it was 250 years later that it doubled, and then it was every 100 years until World War II, and then every 25 years. And now what's crazy is sociologists um, have predicted that actually it's every 12 hours that our knowledge is doubling. So when you go to bed tonight and you wake up tomorrow, according to these metrics, which obviously aren't perfect, but the estimate is that of all the civilizations, because of the age that we are in, where information travels so freely, knowledge doubles every 12 hours. My first idea that I think helps name this cultural moment is that we have more information than ever before, and we have access to it very quickly. Um, there's a reason why we call it the information age, right? This is why we, we are able to sort of have that moniker. And there's um, another sociologist by the name of Thomas Friedman. He's, he's a journalist for the New York Times and author. Uh, he wrote about the age of acceleration, is what he calls it. That everything has sped up to a breakneck speed. Um, I have another graph here for you. He shows that technology... Right, is moving on this upward curve, but the human adapt, uh, ability to adapt to that is more, a little bit more static. And so we are in a position now where the, the rate at which technology is increasing is, is exceeding our ability to adapt to it. And this is causing all kinds of issues. He calls the age we're living in the age of anxiety where there's a low level of anxiety that sort of runs through us that we just all have learned to function in. Maybe you've experienced that to some extent. You've experienced a sort of malaise, a fatigue. Um, we all feel like we're chronically behind the curve, that we're always having to play catch up in some way. And so the second idea is that we feel overwhelmed by all this information. So we're getting all this information more than ever before, and it's overwhelming us without us even realizing it. And third, uh, a guy by the name of Neil Postman, he's a cultural commentator who wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a, it's a must read, um, but he coined the phrase information to action ratio, okay? And essentially what he means by that is, is it's how much information, when we get information, how much of that information do we put into action? I have a quote from him here. He says, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment, a worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It comes indiscriminately directed at no one in particular, disconnected from usefulness, and we are glutted with information, drowning in information, have no control over it, and don't know what to do with it. It's interesting, <clears throat> he, in his book, he points to the catalyst for what moved us in this direction um, and he actually points to um, not the internet or the iPhone or the computer, uh, but a very earlier invention called the telegram. Now, I remember reading this thinking, I don't even know really what it looks like. So I had to Google, what is a telegram? Right? And a telegram was a device that was used to be able to send messages over a long distance. Okay? Um, it was the first time that news could travel a long distance uh, using lightning speed. Okay, this is not quite the internet. This is not quite a phone, but it is a similar device that sort of was able to get news from one place to another. So think about this for a second. This is the first time that news becomes disconnected from time and space. 
whereas maybe you could send a note on a pigeon or something. Um, the reality is there was no way to get news outside of sending someone a courier to, to travel a very long distance, and that would take days, weeks, even months to get to its location. So imagine a town, like imagine a town of 100 people or 1,000 people. Okay, you live in this town, and if you heard bad news, it was usually word of mouth, right? If you hear good news, you, you, may, be at, you may be at the market and hear from someone, oh, so-and-so is pregnant, yay, good news. Or you might hear bad news like, oh, hey, did you hear Jerry's barn is on fire? Now, in this town, right, with no ability to communicate, people aren't going to be getting on their phones, doing hashtags, justice for Jerry and save Jerry. Like, this isn't what's going to happen in this moment. But rather, what do you do? You get a bucket, you go to Jerry's barn, and you help put out the fire, right? When you had news come to you, you would take that news and you would do something about it. Right? This is where this, this, this uh, ratio fatigue comes in because we get so much news every day, a lot of bad news for that matter, whether it's war in Ukraine, whether it's inflation, the housing crisis, whether it's Tesla stocks in the free fall because Elon Musk bought Twitter, like whatever the news we are getting every single day, it affects us emotionally without us realizing it. It's an onslaught. And not only that, but it's, it's news in a very visceral way. Like back in World War II, there weren't social media apps where you could see literal missiles crashing into buildings. I remember the first day um, the war in Ukraine kind of broke out. And I remember thinking, there are so many kids scrolling through TikTok or Instagram and seeing war happen in real time. What is that going to do to our nation's consciousness, especially our youth? To see these things happen in real time. I don't think we were designed to take in this much information. Because what happens is we get affected by this information, and then we can't really do anything about it. And so we get this sort of apathy. Because it's like, I can't keep taking in all this bad news. At the end of the day, it's just going to be nothing I can do and feeling this loss. Comes something where the news is sort of like an in one ear, out the other, because we emotionally can't handle it. So this is what Neil Postman called the low information to action ratio. So three big ideas here. We have more information than ever before. We feel overwhelmed by all this information. We're used to hearing information and doing nothing about it. And I believe that if we want to be discipled by Jesus... We want to experience the kingdom of God on earth. We have got to find a better way. Um, I took a class on Matthew at Fuller, and it was one of my favorite classes. And so real quickly, before we dive into this passage, I want to just nerd out real quick on a few things with this passage. Okay, Matthew was a literary genius, okay? Matthew, um, he, he took Jesus' um, work, and he broke them up into five blocks with five teachings, uh, there are literary seams and numerology, and I'll kind of explain what all that means. But each of Jesus' teachings would end with this little phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, okay? So when you read Matthew um, and you see that, that is Matthew sort of marking off a block, okay? And after each block, there'd be some of Jesus' ministry, and then we'd go back to his teachings. And what's really interesting um, is that the five blocks of Matthew— actually mirror the five books of the Torah. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
And then if you look at the five teachings of Jesus, they actually mirror the five of Moses' sermons that we see in the Old Testament. And so it's kind of like a dream within a dream, right? It's um, Matthew's literary way of saying that Jesus is a kind of new Moses, that he's leading a new exodus, that he's teaching a new Torah to a new Israel. And one of the reasons Matthew does um, sort of do things in this way is numerology was a really big part of the culture at that time. You know this because we've been um, looking at a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation, okay? Numbers played a very significant role in how people would understand um, literature. So if you were to take an outline, okay, I know we're covering a lot of ground really quick here, so stay with me here. If you were to take an outline of the Sermon on the Mount, each of the 14 teachings contains what's called a triadic structure. I'm borrowing this from my professor at Fuller, Dr. Glenn Stasis, but he, he kind of lays it out for us. There would be a traditional teaching, a diagnosis of the vicious cycle, and a transforming initiative, okay? That last one is, is the one I want to focus in on. The, the transforming initiative is here's, after all the teaching, here's now what you are ought to do. So he doesn't leave people with just information. He wants to see people transformed. And so he leaves people with a next step. Now that you've heard this information, now go and do likewise. So seven and three are the numbers that we're going to see a lot of. They're numbers that signify, uh, significant, um, signify sorry, uh, the idea of perfection. And there are 14 sets of three, okay? And so I love this quote. I stole this from my professor. It's so good. He said this, To Matthew and his Jewish culture, seven is the number of completeness and goodness, like seven days in which God created the earth. Fourteen is double completeness and goodness. Three is also the number of completeness. So three times 14 is triply, doubly complete. It is good, really good. All this to say, the words that Jesus is about to share with us are really good. But they're also very hard. These words of mine that Jesus says, these words of mine are not all that Jesus has to say about the kingdom of heaven, but I think they are some of the best. It's the center of gravity for Jesus' vision and life in the kingdom. And he says, whoever hears these words of mine and then puts them into practice, the Greek word here is poieto, which is puts them into practice. It's one word that means put these words into practice. And it's used 22 times all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So the, the running theme here is it's not just hear information for information's sake, but to hear the information and then to go and put it into practice. And so then Jesus tells the story. Therefore, everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built this house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. My suspicion is that many of you grew up in the church, and if you did grow up in the church, maybe you're familiar in Sunday school with something called the flannel graph. Anybody old enough to remember that? Right? You'd think... Um, 
They'd make a comeback since flannel's like all hip now, but I haven't seen them in a while. Um, but I actually think that the flannel graph version of this story sometimes does a disservice in how we read it. Because this is a story um, that is a very, uh, Jesus is being very deadly serious with those who are listening to him in this moment. It's a story about two home builders. One is wise and one is foolish. The word wise is from the word phronimos in the Greek. Okay? And this word uh, translated as smart, thoughtful, enlightened are the different ways it's translated. Uh, the word foolish is the word moros. It's where we get the term moron. Um, it can be translated as stupid, not thoughtful, or not enlightened. And so the point in, in sh- showing that is I think the, the Greek captures something here. These aren't just moral words, but they're also describing a mental state. Dr. Dale Bruner writes, Jesus does not contrast good and bad in this parable, but thoughtful and foolish. There is an intelligence in morality, and there is a morality in genuine intelligence. And this, I think, is the idea here that we need to recapture, that human beings are not as evolved and as good as maybe culture wants us to think that they are, but rather that our minds and bodies are indeed corrupted by sin. And in Jesus' day, that reality was true then as well for his listeners to help them understand that this is a reality that we are in. If someone thought well and they lived well, um, they were known as a phronomous man or woman or a wise man or woman. If someone didn't, if they lacked intelligence and morality, they were thought of as a moron or a fool. And so the wise and foolish, these, these, this terminology are buzzwords that we see all throughout the Old Testament in the wisdom literature. We see that in Ecclesiastes, we see that all throughout the Proverbs, this sort of wise and foolish uh, pairing that we see put back to back. And Jesus is tapping into a conversation that was happening in ancient Israel, this conversation um, about wise and foolish and morality and good and bad. And he uses this parable to make his point. In his day, homes, okay, so when he says, um, I want you to build your home, they were more than just single-family homes in our culture, right? These were generational homes. So your parents, your grandparents, um, and on, so on and so forth. And so you can imagine that as your family grew, instead of selling your house and buying a new one, that's not how it worked in their culture. It was an agrarian culture. So there's a lot of people who live on, on kind of the outskirts of town and would grow their families. They would also run their business in their homes. So whether they were fishermen or whether they were carpenters or whether they were, uh, you name it, whatever profession they had, their business, their family, it's generational, all of this is tied up in their home. So another way to think of it is basically your life, your whole livelihood is tied up in this idea of the home. The wise person builds their house of their lives, I'll I'll phrase it like that, on the bedrock of Jesus' teachings. And the foolish man does nothing. See, we don't know why the foolish man builds his house on the sand. Jesus doesn't really give us a whole lot of reasons why. Like, obviously, um, he isn't very intelligent, but um, I think there's a reason why, and it's, it's a smart way in which Jesus often teaches why he doesn't give us a clear answer. Um, maybe the man was tired and overwhelmed. Maybe they preferred a different teacher or rabbi than Jesus. Uh, maybe they uh, loved their sinful lifestyle. And they knew that Jesus was not what they wanted for their life. 
But Jesus doesn't say, which is brilliant, because I think it allows the listener to find themselves in the story. For us, we can find ourselves in this story. Jesus is saying, what have you built your life on? You see, the terrifying thing is that from a distance, you could see two houses, and you probably wouldn't be able to tell which one was built on a poor foundation. You could have someone who has the same job as you, someone who has a similar um, routine. Maybe you go to the same coffee shop. Maybe you drive the same car. Maybe you live a similar lifestyle. But the reality is, is that the foundation on which your life is on could be completely different. I remember when I was uh, in 2006, I lived in Gurney, Illinois, and it's a suburb outside Chicago, and there was this flood. And it was flood, the flood was so bad that it actually flooded some of the main streets. And I had this friend who sometimes I got into trouble with. His name was Micah. And Micah and I, uh, it was his idea to get canoes and to travel down the main street that was like completely flooded with water. Now, I knew my parents would not be happy with this. It's super dangerous and not smart. Um, but I was at Micah's house, and I was like, all right, here we go. Let's just do it. And Micah, for some reason, was obsessed with trying to get on the news. So, like, there are helicopters, like, taking footage of the flooding and, like, you know, trucks coming by to try and get footage. And so we would paddle until we'd see a helicopter, and then we would stand in our canoe and raise our paddles like we were Wookiees or something, trying to get their attention, right, just cheering. And I remember doing this for, for like, an entire day. It was very foolish. I, I was the fool in this story. But let me tell you something I remember. I remember how bad the flooding was, and I remember canoeing past some of these houses some of them, like water was, was nearly a quarter of the way up the house. And it was completely solid and standing firm. And there were others that had completely collapsed. And we lived in a neighborhood that had, um, it, was, it was not the nicest neighborhood. And so there were many homes that did not stand the just absolute destruction of the flood. The truth is, the flood is going to come and oftentimes we don't know. We won't know what the foundation is until the flood gets here and shows us reality. Uh, this passage historically, all the way back to Augustine, was interpreted um, as a story of the rain and flood representing hardships. So think about your life. Perhaps that could be a diagnosis. It could be unemployment or bad news or the death of a dream or the loss of a loved one. Whatever the hardships in life that we face might be, are sort of what is represented here by the flood. It's not a question of if the flood comes, it's a question of when the flood come, when the rains came. You see, this is what I love about Jesus and his teaching. He's just brutally honest. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He tells the truth, and he's brutally honest about the human condition. He says, both for both the wise and the fool, the flood is coming. And his way is not a way that says, I'm going to lead you out of hardship. It says, no, I'm going to lead you through it. I may not necessarily lead you out of it in this moment. You might have to endure it, but I will be with you through all of it. See, this was right in the face of what we may hear as the prosperity gospel, which um, has taken over many parts of the United States. It's the the, the gospel, the false gospel that says um, if, you, uh, if you give, that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and whole. 
Um, it wants you to be successful. And so if you write a check for $1,000, God will multiply that by 10, right? It's this idea that God exists to bless you. And the problem is, well, the Bible, right? Over and over again, Jesus is honest about the fact that trouble is coming. There's a crisis of faith waiting to happen if you believe that God's existence is simply so that we can live in the blessed life, trying to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. The flood is coming. And hear me, when it comes, it will shake you to your core. And when that happens, what is revealed could either be maybe one of the greatest moments of your life. When you look back and look at your life, it may be one of the greatest moments, or it could be one of the worst. I don't know about you, um, but if you've ever seen someone's life implode, and maybe you don't know anyone personally, you can point to it, perhaps a celebrity, a life that just sort of fell apart, whether it's Harvey Weinstein, or you, know, you can list all kinds of people in, in the public sphere that have sort of fallen uh, whether it's Bill Clinton, when his morality stuff came up, people were at the top of their power. Some of those powerful people in the world came crashing down because the truth of a foundation was revealed. When the storms come, when they shake you to your core, when the foundation is revealed, is your life going to be built around success, wealth accumulation, materialism, a desire to win? Is your life going to be built around sex, beauty, youth, appearance? Is it going to be built on popularity, what people think of you, how much of a following you have? Is it going to be built on hedonism or the good life? What is your foundation going to be? Or is it going to be built on a life with Jesus? When the flood comes, it will crash. The Greek word here for crash is the, passage, is, the, is the word megale, which is, you could probably put it mega, is the word we get from it. It will fall with a mega crash. Um, you know, 1 Timothy, <clears throat> Paul's writing to, to Timothy, and he says, the sins of some are obvious, reaching a place of judgment ahead of them, which is true. Like, we think it's some people, we can see their sin. If it's a public thing, they had a moral failing, we use that terminology, many Sadly, many religious leaders and pastors we see in a public way have a moral failure, okay? We see that, um, and it's sad. But sometimes it's a slow unraveling. Look what Paul says in the second half of the verse. He says in the first half, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, but the sins of others trail behind them. Sometimes it's not this great immediate unraveling. Sometimes it's a slow and steady unraveling. And this is where all the more Jesus' words are so incredibly important. You know, if I'm honest, and I think about, I was thinking about this today, as I think about um, some of the things I've watched in the last three or four years of people's lives imploding in very public ways for some people, Sometimes in my heart, like, I don't, I don't, like, think, oh, I'm better than that person. I actually think the opposite. I think, man, I think that person's actually a better, better than I am. It's like a real honest, like, heart check, like, man, this word, this warning is for me. What is my foundation built on? Jesus is speaking directly to my own heart in this moment. 
you know, Jesus and the scriptures often speak about this idea, this fear of God. Have you heard that phrase? We are to fear the Lord. And I can't tell you how many times people try to like explain away that word, like, oh, it's not fear. It really means hunger or awe or wonder. And actually, it means fear. Like this, the, the Hebrew word of it is it actually means to be afraid. Fear is not always a negative in this specific context. I remember I was on a mission trip to Nicaragua uh, with this church, actually. And one of our days off, we went to go see this volcano, which was awesome. And uh, we went up to the volcano, and there was this sign that said, um, I think it said, like, don't go any farther, danger, you could die. And I didn't speak Spanish, so I just like, whatever, and I just went right past it. And I remember um, some of the adults with us were like, why is the youth pastor, like, doing this? This is not good. But I just had, I had to see. I had to look over the edge. So I walked to the edge of the volcano, and there's this, like, abyss. Like, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. And there's like steam rising from the bottom. I can't see lava or anything, but you can tell that whatever's down there um, is not good. Isaac, you were in Nicaragua. You probably saw that. Um, it's one of the most like terrifying things I've ever seen. And I remember the emotion that I was experiencing. In that moment, I experienced true unbridled fear. That like a gust of wind could push me and I could fall into this pit. There was this overwhelming sense of what I would call fear. You know, I think fear in some ways can be a little bit intoxicating. It's being in the face of a raw, untamed beauty and power. And maybe what I had a glimpse of in that moment was the fear of God. The warning from Jesus should incite some fear, a wake-up call for our life that the rains are going to come. And if our foundation is not on Christ himself, then there will be problems. It should snap us out of our apathy. In a culture where many of us have sort of fallen into this information overload, where we hear bad news all the time, can't do anything about it, and we're sort of stuck in this space, it should wake us up and be, hey, look, there is more to this life. And make us ask the hard questions. Information alone does not mean transformation, okay? We see this time and time again with Jesus and his teachings. He doesn't um, just give us an ideology. He doesn't, it's, it's bigger than that. It's mind and body. It's a way of life. It's a life. You know, Jesus was a rabbi. Um, he was a teacher. Um, but for him, it wasn't just about information. It was about not just trying to inform someone, but to instead form them. The end of the warning, and we'll close with this. Jesus had finished saying these things. The crowds were amazed at his teaching as he taught with one who had authority and not of a teacher of the law. You see, the rabbi style of the day was to quote other rabbis. Okay, So you would say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and that rabbi who quoted another rabbi, and your authority was vested not in you, but initially with the Torah and then rabbis who were indeed quoting each other. But Jesus was different. He was radically different. He didn't quote other rabbis. He would get up and he would just say, truly, I tell you. Right? He would just name reality. He would put language to the way life actually works. He would say, truly, I tell you, 
this. And then he would go on and give his teaching and then say, now go and put this into practice. The word for this is authority. Okay, we see this word. He was one who had authority. He spoke with authority. He wasn't just a a conduit of truth, but Jesus was truth itself, an embodied truth. I love the way Eugene Peterson, uh, he paraphrases this passage, the end of it, and I want to read it to you from his message translation. This is how he translated the line. He said, when Jesus concludes his address, the crowd bursts into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. Quite a contrast to the religious teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. Why was Jesus so compelling? Because Jesus was embodying the teaching. It was his life. He was giving his life in his teaching. And then he makes these wild claims, right? He, he, uh, he claims he is the gate and that his teaching is the way for life forever. He also claims that on Judgment Day, people will say to him, right? He says, people will say to me, Lord, Lord, and will be sent away from who? Him. He is speaking with this authority. He goes on to say, um, the people will cast out demons and prophesy in his name. No rabbi has ever said this. And then he goes on to close and say, then he claims um, his teaching is the foundation to build your life on. Either he's a crazy, like, crazy figure, he's out of his mind, he's a lunatic in the things he's saying, or perhaps Jesus is something different. You see, many would think that's blasphemy. People accused him of blasphemy. But I think it's because Jesus is God in the flesh. This is that profound mystery that Jesus is fully human, fully God, is speaking as truth itself. The creator God who created you and me and all things knows how humans flourish. And he says, here's how you do it. Here's how you should live. Watch me. Learn from me. Watch how I go through life. Now you go and live this way too. Your house is your life. So the question I have for you in closing is what are you building your life on? What is the bedrock that you are building your life on? Because all of us are sinners saved by grace. It's not our own doing. It is by Christ alone. But we are building a life. We are building a home. Are we building it on Jesus' teachings, on his practices, on the community of believers that we go through life with? Is that where our foundation is found, or is it found in something else? Jesus ends his greatest teaching, his greatest hit. He ends it with this sober warning. It's not a pep talk. It's not a feel-good message. It's a dire message. And he says to build your foundation on something that matters. Build your life on me. Let's pray. Father, we pray um, for all those in this room who are wrestling. For all of us who long to grow 
and to be, a, be discipled by you, to be your apprentice. I pray that as we look and take stock of our life, if we maybe resonate with this, this apathy or we resonate with this sort of information fatigue as we sort of look at the things around us, Lord, I pray that you would wake us up from that, that we would see this warning and that it would build in us a healthy fear of you, that it would drive us to want to uh, put these things into practice, to live out our faith and to share the gospel with a, a world that desperately needs to hear it. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in this room. We thank you for the ways in which you minister to us. It's for your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.